I'm sure we have a number of visitors that are here because of the baptisms, and we have a lot of visitors every week. Uh, We have been going through the book of John. Today we come to a passage that's uh, very challenging. It's probably one of the saddest passages that you will find in the Scriptures. Uh, it's, It's a passage I think that's particularly challenging to you this morning. And to me as your pastor, because I had to wrestle with this text. Um, uh, Because it it is addressing the betrayal of Judas. Who lived with Jesus for three years. Night and day. Uh, it's It's a passage that if you think about it causes you to realize your absolute need of God's mercy. God's grace in your life. And so, uh, let's read this passage uh, together. I am not speaking of all of you, speaking to his apostles gathered there, at the Lord's Supper. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place. You may believe that I am he. Truly, truly I say to you. Whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the, close to Jesus. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So the disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought, because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. And so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Word uh, that teaches us uh, who you are, teaches us who we are. It teaches us um, what you are 
doing and have done in the world. Father, we thank you for the ultimate revelation of Jesus Christ and all the benefits that we have in him through his death and resurrection. And so, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. Uh, Lord, that you would take our hearts, which have such a great tendency uh, to harden the way, say, see, the way we see Judas' heart, hardened to the bitter end, to the point where he was given over to Satan. Uh, so, Lord, we ask for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, on New Year's Day in 1937... Uh, the most significant, one of the most significant theologians of the 20th century uh, died of pneumonia. Uh, he was uh, speaking at a Christmas conference in uh, North Dakota. Uh, he was already uh, weak in, in constitution, and he um, died. Uh, his name was J. Gresham Machen. Maybe you've heard of J. Gresham Machen. He's had an impact on me. Uh, he lived in the early part of the 20th century and was um, a great champion in the intellectual realm uh, as he did battle with um, a liberal theology that was coming from Germany. And uh, as he was dying, and he knew he would never uh, return to Westminster Seminary, where, uh, a seminary that he helped found, uh, he wrote to a good friend of his whose name was uh, John Murray. And John Murray was a uh, great systematic theologian. Many of you know that name as well. And it was a simple note, and it simply said this. I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. Now, here's this brilliant man who had to struggle through German, uh, the German theologians, the, the liberal theology of his day, and then and champion the faith. And he boils all his learning, all his scholarship, all of his understanding of Greek and Hebrew and systematics and biblical theology. He boiled it down to this. Note. But for the uh, perfect obedience of Christ... Now, John Murray knew what he meant. John Murray, he read that note, and he knew that his friend, Jay Gresham Mason, died in peace. So what does that mean? <laughs> uh, what, what, what did Jay Gresham Mason mean when he boiled everything down, all the theology down to the fact that he is resting in the perfect obedience of Christ. Well, in essence, he's saying that our only hope is in Christ. Our only hope is in what he has accomplished, not what J. Gresham Machen accomplished. Not J. Gresham Machen's love for Christ or J. Machen Gresham's use of the time and diligent and discipline in his life. Machen had none of that. He knew that his only hope was in the person and work of Christ. 
Let me tell you what that means. Now, we've talked about this many times. It's there in our text. Uh, uh, not our text, but printed on your bulletin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And basically, the whole Bible can be boiled down to two sections. If you want to understand the Bible, you have Genesis 1 through 3, and then you have the rest of the Bible. And what you have in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, you see what God has done in terms of creating this world, this universe, out of nothing. And then the, the penultimate of the creation was his creation of us. Human beings that were marvelously and, and fearfully made. And so when he, he, he made Adam and Eve, he enters into this covenant relationship because he can engage them because they're created in his image. But God structured all of history, all of mankind, for you this morning, everybody here, he structures all of history through this word, the covenant. That he made, he made a covenant with Adam. But here, what you need to understand, if you're to understand the perfect obedience of Christ, you need to understand that in that covenant that God made with Adam, it was a covenant of life and death. It was the dignity of Adam that he could make free choices. But Adam broke that covenant. Now, this might be a shocker to some of you, especially if you're visiting. If you've been a Redeemer, you've heard this once or twice. But you see, what the Bible teaches very clearly is that when Adam sinned, you were united to him because he represents the whole creation. And so when Adam died and he sinned, and he broke God's law, we sinned in Adam according to Romans 5, according to what we have printed there at the front of your bulletin. And so when he fell, we all fell. Now, you might say, is that fair? Well, we do this all, this is how, our, this is how all of society functions. We're always hooked up to somebody, aren't we? If our president says you go to war, he's called the head of the federal government. He is a federal head. And if he decides that, then that's what these uh, young men and women will do. And the consequences will be great if the president of the United States, whoever that president is, decides to go to war. Now, the rest of the Bible is about God's promise that since that covenant has been broken and no one will be justified by that covenant so that James says very clearly that if you keep the whole law and break it at one point, you're guilty of all. Why? Because of who God is. It's an incredible thing to be in a relationship with God. And the reality is this morning, whether you understand what structures history or not, that is what structures history, is this covenant. But you see, God makes a promise because the sons of Adam are without hope. The sons and daughters are without hope. The rest of the Bible is about God's covenant with himself in the person of what 
our text on the front of the bulletin says, the second Adam, the man from heaven who enters into that covenant on our behalf to do the things we don't do, right? To love people, uh, to, to love those who are close to us, uh, sure, obedience. But not only did he keep the law, not only did he keep the requirements of the law that Adam broke, but Jesus Christ himself did it because he loved the Father and he loved uh, us, and thus he fulfilled the two tables of the law to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And in Jesus Christ, the, in the cross, both God's love and his justice come together. Now let me put it another way. I have no idea how religious you are. I don't know if you're Baptist, because we have a lot of visitors. I don't know if you're Methodist. I don't know if you're Bible Church, non-denominational, Roman Catholic, Methodist, Eastern Orthodox. Matters not to me. Often people say, Why are you Presbyterian? I tell them, Well, it's a mess, but it's the best mess I know. Let me tell you what matters right now as you sit in this seat in light of this eternal covenant as to whether or not you're in the Presbyterian Church or the Catholic Church, but whether you're in Christ or not. Because you see, the Bible teaches very clearly in our text that the sons of Adam have no hope. Now, here's my question to you this morning as as we come to our text, and if I were to give you a proposition of what I really want us to say in the time that we have together, is if you are to know the transforming work of Christ, we must embrace what he has accomplished. Man, that's unbelievable. You see, we, we, we so much operate off our performance. That's why some of you are so un, such unhappy Christians. You know, Flannery O'Connor, I know I've quoted this before, but she said, you know, some people avoid sin so they can avoid Jesus. And you're so busy trying to be the good Christian or what you think the good Christian is that you really, what you don't want is that relationship with Christ. But you see, when you begin to understand that Christ has finished the work and all the law can do is constantly drive you to your need for for Jesus Christ, then all of a sudden the work of the Spirit begins and our hearts are open to Him and our hearts are open to other people. So I want to ask you this morning, I want to ask you, because I had to ask myself, Looking at this text, looking at Judas Iscariot, knowing friends of mine who are great ministers of the gospel who've denied the faith and moved on. Well, apart from God's grace, I'm Judas. Apart from God's grace. And that, by the way, if you're not a Christian here, we'll see how this applies to you as well. But I'm especially speaking to the covenant people of God. And I can ask that question because I, as I'm reading that text and I'm going, wow, what, what's the difference between me at this point and another minister who's flown the coop? And I'll tell you what it is. It's the grace of God. You know, as we think about being sons of Adam, and, and, that, and again, if you're, if you're not a son of God in Jesus Christ, if you're not, if you're not embracing him, if, you've not, uh, if you're not in him, 
uh, th- then your life is just helplessly um, miserable. So, C.S. Lewis uh, put it this way to understand the, the perfect obedience Christ, what he has done, what he's accomplished for all of who would come to him this morning to give up on your dastardly good deeds. He says this, that the sons of God became the sons of Adam or the son of man so that the sons of men might become the sons of God. You know, I'm excited about Christmas. I don't know why we don't sing those carols more, right? But what a, what a beautiful carol in the incarnation because that's what it is about. It says that born that man, speaking of Jesus, no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's why he came. That's why we can rest. That's why we worship. That's why we take communion. That's why we receive benedictions. We're not here today for me to give you some magic bullet on how you're ultimately going to change. It's through being in Christ and beginning to understand that week after week, communion after communion. And either you are becoming more and more like Peter who once he denies Christ, he is broken and he repents and he weeps and he lives a life of repentance or every week. Makes no sense. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. It made no sense to Judas and it hardens your heart to your undoing. Is that fair enough? So let me ask you this morning as I give you my points. Are you in Christ? Have you rested in him? I'm not asking if you believe in him. Or are you, are you in Adam? That's the whole Bible revolves around. You understand? So here's what I want us to see uh, in the just a few moments we have together. First, we see the need of the sons of Adam. We'll see this in the grieving of the Son of God over them. And then secondly, we will see the hopeless condition of the sons of Adam. There is no hope for those who are under the covenant of works. There's no hope for you today if you're going, well, I need to be a little bit better. Or somebody says, asks you, how do you get to heaven? You say, well, you know, I'm trying to be the best person I can be. You, you, you got to understand that covenant's done. And then finally, we see the love of the Son of God for the sons of Adam. Now, I don't have time to do a lot of exegesis. Um, but I want to hit the highlights of this thing, okay? So the first thing to see is this. Uh, we see the, the need of the sons of Adam through the grieving of the Son of God over them. We see this is in verses 18 through 21. So let me give you the backdrop. If you're just here, Jesus has gathered his disciples together. This is the last hours of the life of Christ. He brings them to the upper room. And you know what he does before this passage? He watches their feet. I remember Rob did a great job preaching that sermon last week. Uh, and then uh, he makes a comment as they're washing their feet that, you know, I, I, I wash you, but not all of you is clean. And he's talking about Judas. And by the way, Judas was an apostle. You got it? 
who's an apostle. So then after uh, he makes that statement, and they're moving from the foot washing to the supper, verses 18 through 21, Jesus begins to say, listen, one of you is going to betray me. So I read Psalm 41. Jesus is always fulfilling scripture. He's, he's quoting Psalm 41 because David was a type of Christ. I mean, David was the king. And he was to rule over God's people. And, of course, Jesus is the ultimate king. Uh, but J- uh, Jesus, uh, David, had been betrayed by one of his friends, probably Ahithophel, a guy that ate at the table with him. Someone who broke bread. And guys, what could be more painful? And some of you experienced to be betrayed by someone. Right? A dad who left you. Or a dad who's there, but he ain't there for you. Pardon me, he's not there. My wife wants me to work on the ain't. Okay. Ooh, the spouse who's broken that covenant through adultery. He's been unfaithful. I I can imagine that betrayal. But here's Judas. For three years, he's with Jesus. And Jesus says, that one has lifted up his heel against me. The idea there is, is, is the horse. This your horse. And you feed the horse. And you'll get a little too close to that horse, and that horse kicks you right in the face. But I want you to notice in verse 21, he pivots at this point as he's moving toward the supper. And it says that Jesus was deeply troubled in his spirit. So here he's been betrayed. The question ends up being, how was he troubled? In what, what way was he troubled? Well, I'm certainly sure he was troubled that he would be crucified the next day. I mean, how would you like that last meal? I don't know how he ate it. But almost every commentator, I want to tell you this. He was, he was troubled in spirit because of, what, because of his concern for Judas. I mean, there's nobody like Jesus. What's he troubled about? Well, if you notice, uh, my point is that he's grieving over the need of the sons of men. What is the need? We've got to remember, it wasn't just Judas that that, uh, betrayed him, but but Peter denies him later that night. And then all the other disciples scatter. You know, and I, I know sometimes you look at the Bible stories, but I mean, just think, if you're there and you're with Jesus for all those years, for three years, you're there, you're seeing everything, and everybody bolts. So let me tell you what Jesus grieves over for you this morning. You see, we tend to think that sin is breaking the rules. And that's why you're so anxious. That's why you're so... You know, you're upset all the time or you've got all these insecurities in your life because you know you're supposed to be, you know, you know you're supposed to be doing all these things, you see. You're supposed to be more ethical and uh, you're going to try harder not to, to do these bad things, you see. But, but that's not the nature of sin. The nature of sin is what we see here. And that is the broken relationship 
you got to get this, guys, or else none of this will mean anything to you. Now, this text, you go, hey, I just need, give me some more instruction on how to love my wife better or how to be a better parent. That, I'm trying to tell you how you can be, and it's not through trying harder. Let me tell you what, what, it, what it is. And I was thinking about this. It is, um, it's like this. It's the, it, it, when God, God didn't say to Adam and Eve, did you break the rules? He didn't say that. Y'all heard me say this meeting. He didn't say, hey, did you break the rule I gave you? I only gave you one. Did you break it? He said, have you eaten of the tree? You, that I ask you not to. So the most malicious sin, the greatest sins, are the sins against one another, friends. And if your heart is hardening, then you really don't care about the relationship, whether it's your wife or your kids or your people you work with or your church members. You don't care. I'll give you an illustration of this. I remember years, a number of years ago when I was... Um, I was doing RUF. I think it was my last year. Uh, th- I met a guy who was the, the son of um, a great counselor, great guy. And, um, and uh, so as he was kind of giving me his testimony. He was probably 26 at the time. This, this son ultimately ended up being a minister. Uh, no, yeah, I think he ended up being a minister. But uh, he rebelled against his dad. His <laughs> dad's a great guy. And, he, you know, he did the... You know, he got tattooed when tattoo wasn't cool. Uh, you know, put the earrings in when the earrings weren't cool. You know, it's, it's okay. Now it's just, you know, it's okay. <laughs> so if you see me with a tattoo, no. I, I, no. But, but anyhow, so, you know, he's riding Harley Davidson's. He's the proverbial hellraiser. Can I say that? And, and I'm like, well, why did you do that? He said, I just want to see how much my daddy would love me. He said, I knew he loved me, but I just want to see how much he loved me. I said, you're kidding me, man. I said, what, what changed you? He said, when I started realizing how much my daddy loved me. When I finally really understood what I had done, it was my offense against that relationship. All that my father had done for me, and I'm tipping the hat for, for the most of my life saying, Hey, I'll see you at Christmas. That's what hurt the father. And when he understood the father's love, he was broken. You see. You see, that's the nature of sin. I mean, how much do you tip your hat at the father who sent his son? Do you know you owe him everything? And if you're not a Christian here, you owe him everything. But Jesus understood that. And so Jesus understands the need, but he also understands the hopeless condition. You say, well, where do you see that? That's the second point. Well, let me ask you this. Do you ever kind of read that and go, how did Jesus, Judas do that? <laughs> right? It doesn't, it's not, it doesn't even make sense, does it? It's not rational, is it? It's Come on, you got it together. What the heck? I mean, he saw all these things. 
If I had been there and I'd seen Jesus walking on the water, if I'd been there and I'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead, I would have believed. Do you know what Judas was doing after he saw Lazarus raised from the dead and Mary breaks the ointment at his feet? You get an insight into his heart because it says he was upset because of all that money that could have been used for the poor. But it says he was the money bag guy. He was covetous. And he begins to look at that money. And the whole time, he's seeing all these things. Yeah, okay, Elijah, he, he did some great things. Moses did some great things. Jesus is doing some great things. And when Jesus gets in power, you know what? I'm going to be the treasurer of uh, the government. Isn't that amazing? Lazarus raised from the dead. And, and Judas, and Judas, uh, selling Jesus. How does that happen? Well, we know that he, he hid it. Now, now notice when he says, when, when, when Jesus, remember Jesus gave him, he had the place of honor apparently because he dips, Jesus gives him the bread. He's right next to him. Judas has the place of honor. And when Jesus says, one will betray me, all the other ones are saying, is it I? That's a great thing to say, by the way. That's a sign that this sermon is hitting you. Is it me? Is it I? Not Judas. But you know what's amazing? Jesus tells Judas, you got to do what you got to do. And Judas gets up and leaves, right? And when he leaves, do they say, did those guys say, hey, we knew it was Judas all the time? Scary stuff. That beady eye. Don't you have a picture of Judas being a real thin faced guy, you know, and, and pointed out? I, I mean, that's the way I always see Judas, I think. Yeah, why well, didn't they figure out about him? They didn't. You know why? Because he, 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 um, he's a penultimate hypocrite. He didn't want Jesus. He wanted all the benefits. Now, let me tell you something. The sign of being a Christian, I mean a true one, is that he's your benefit. That he's the great pearl, not the money bag. Not the things he'll do for you. Not that he's going to solve your problems in your marriage. Listen, everybody's going to have problems in your marriage till you're dead. Okay, can I, can I say that? And if you say, well, I don't have any problems in my marriage, I'm like, well, I, okay. I, then maybe both of you quit sinning. And that's the wrong theology, by the way. Avoiding sin to avoid Jesus. And you just exist, and you don't even know you're blind. So how does this happen? I mean, they didn't know. Let me tell you what sin does. It hides in you. And it's like a lion getting ready to pounce on you. And we see that in the book of Genesis. Remember Cain and Abel and God says, he comes to Cain. And I think Jesus, Jesus is coming to Judas. Some people, I, I think he loved Judas. And, and some people go, well, he knew he was going to betray him. That's what the Bible said. Let me tell you what. He knew he'd be crucified. But in his humanity, was he not in the garden hours later saying, Father, if there's another way? Because he's a human being. And he loved Judas. But Judas denied it all. And you know what? Then it says, and Satan entered him. Let me tell you and warn you that if 
if God is coming to Cain and said, Cain, listen, man, sin is at your doorstep and it desires you. It wants to pounce on you. And you ignore it. Then you'll, then you will be taken over by the thing that you love. What can I say? But by the grace of God. Well, you can point your finger at Judas. And, it, and it's a sad case. But, you know, Peter himself was denying the Lord right after that. And by, I never knew this. But, you, you know, right after Jesus says all this stuff. And, you know, I'm going to die for you. And wash each other's feet. You know, they start talking about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Now, how do you think that would feel? As a human being. And all your friends... Who you've been teaching and teaching and teaching. Which, by the way, let me ask him, did Judas Iscariot cast out demons? Yes. Did Judas Iscariot preach the gospel? Yes. Are there ministers who end up going off the deep end? Chuck, we know it. Many of our friends. How do you say, how does that happen? Well, it can happen to me. I preach some of the best sermons I think I've ever preached, knowing that my heart is... You know, you know what I'm saying? And you go, oh, okay, I guess I'm okay. <laughs> Is it possible God could use a minister and then, and then just hand him over? You're saved by grace. Now, I, I, I don't want to leave you on the... the I, I've got to give you the backdrop. Is that, is that fair enough in the text? And if, uh, and if you're not asking yourself some questions, well, gee, well, how do what I know? Let me tell you how you'll know. Let me tell you how you know. Is the last thing is that Jesus loves Jesus loves the son the son of God loves the sons of Adam and and it's going to be that love that's going to melt you I mean look I don't have time to do this we have to take communion and I want to end with my last illustration Jesus got throughout the Bible says but God called to his people and his people would not have it he says oh Jerusalem Jerusalem Jesus says how long to gather you under my wing but you wouldn't have it you wouldn't have it you wanted to do your own thing you want to live your own life and then die and I would give you eternal life but you have no understanding of your need Jesus says how can I you know and he's bringing judgment upon Israel he says how can a mother Give up her child. How can I give you up? There is this love that's there. You see it for Judas. And it's only the love of Christ. And realizing what he had to do to accomplish that work that can change you. But I want to tell you where you see it ultimately, and I close. It's in the last three words of that text, or maybe it's four. And it was night. It was night. Night. You think, you think so? Oh, oh, yeah, it's dark. You think that's what John was doing? No, the whole thing with John is light and dark, light and dark, light and dark. And you know what Judas does? He goes into the darkness, and he ignores the light, like many of you are doing this morning. You're sinning against the light. And God have mercy. I hope it's not too late. I have to say that. And you're thinking what you need is uh, uh, another church experience. Or you need to read this book. And what you need to do is ask God to have mercy upon you and put you in Christ. So he goes into the dark and he's taken over by darkness. I mean, have you already, is the door shut? Or is the door still cracked? 
But here we see the love of Jesus. Do you know that he went in the night? He went in the night and he said, Father, please let this cup pass from me. Not your will, my will, but your will be done. Unlike the first Adam in the garden, second Adam in the garden. And he said, Father, please, for these people here at Redeemer, is there another way? And there's no other way. You know why? Because somebody's got to pay for your sin. And he did 2,000 years ago. But you know what? Later, it was daytime when he went out the night and he submitted. He was beaten. And then he was taken to the cross. And you know when he was on the cross, do you, you know what happened to the light? It became dark. Utterly dark. You know why it became dark? Because the sin of God's people were placed upon him. And he cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's plunged in the darkness so that we might have the light. Now, my friends, how can that not move us? When? Like between now and lunch? I'm, no, I'm like constantly thinking about the fact, I'm in Christ. I'm in Christ. There's darkness in the world, but I've seen the light, and he is so good, and I want people to know the light. Come on. I close. We might be five minutes over, sorry. Okay? I try to, I try to get you out. A lot of times people say, oh, how's preaching today? It'll be, we'll get out maybe at 12. But I, the best illustration, one of the best, you know, always uh, illustration about substitution, right? Somebody substitute. There's always great illustration. I, I, I read this one not long ago. Oliver Cromwell was the, um, uh, was the, the, the governor or whatever of England uh, when they got rid of the, the king. And, uh, and a man was, uh, had, had uh, broken he, he, some crime. He's going to get shot in the morning. He's going to get shot. And uh, so when the, when the bell rung, the, the shots would go off. Well, the bell never rung. And he's saying, what's going on here? And so he finds out that this guy's fiance was the problem. She got the bell. She got the bell from ringing. You know how she got that bell from ringing? She climbed up there, and she put her hands around that bell. And as that bell was hitting, it crushed her hands and crushed her fingers and knocked some fingers off. And, and so when she comes to him to give explanation, she says, he's my fiancé. And when the bell strikes, he's dead. And I love him. And when he saw her hands, it broke her. It broke him. And he was set free, you see. That, that's what Jesus has done in his love. He's clasped your sin and your deceit and your hard-heartedness toward people and your heart and your lack of love for God. And, you know, he clasped it. Not only clasped it, he entered into it. But hallelujah, the perfect obedience of Christ is ours. He's risen. Isn't that good news? Are you going to rest in him? Or are you going to rest in trying harder and being good? And, and are you always upset and all the we must look to Christ and rest in him. Let's pray together. Father, I pray you'd bless the preaching of your word. Father, convert people this morning that they would look away from their dastardly good deeds and their church attendance and their uh, theological mindset and that they would like children come to Christ who is so loving even today. Holy Spirit work as we come to communion in Jesus' name. Amen.